Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Line of Lamb Ministries, and welcome, uh, welcome again to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We are deep into the book, and if you will, join with me at chapter 21. We're going to take up our study from verse 23. And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? I love this question, and I wish other brethren, when you hear different teachers, I wish you'd ask this question. This is a wise question to ask if you're hearing instruction from a, a man who's representing himself as a man of God. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Let me tell you what the proper answer is. You know, that Yeshua is not going to answer directly to him, but let me tell you what it is. The authority comes from God, and it's by his anointing. Uh, that's the reason the Messiah is called the anointed one. He's the one who has the authority from the Father to come to do the works of God. And any other man, any other teacher, he gets his authority from God. God calls him to the task, and he receives anointing from that. Any man standing up and saying, well, the church gives me the authority to do this, or this other organization gives me authority, he's getting his authority from men. If you want spiritual instruction with God, listen to a man who gets his authority from God. And by the way, this can be easily measured and easily determined. And in this case, uh, the chief priests and the high and the elders are calling him to question and saying, by what authority do you do these things? This is a very powerful question. Verse 24, and Yeshua answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you what authority I do these things. So it's, in the Hebrew way of thinking, you exchange questions. And the idea, the logic of that is if you answer my question, it will be part of the answer to the question you asked me. And in fact, in all conflict negotiations, this is all negotiations, the, 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 the rule is ask great questions, ask good questions, get information rather than answer and just give information away. You're not being coy, you're really helping the process to get all the information out so that the best decision can be made. And if somebody has to learn something new, you get the information out so that they're able to learn it. So that's what he's doing here. They've asked him a question. He said, I'll answer your question if you answer this question. And by the way, it has to do with their question. If they'll answer the question honestly, it will tie into that. So he says with these things, verse 25, the baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves and saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? For if we say from men, 
We fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And answering Yeshua, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The point that Yeshua is really making is that John the Baptist was called. In fact, there's a prophecy in Scripture calling him. And so you could easily say he was called by God. Therefore, what he did, he did under the authority of God. Well, if they answer yes, that we believe that it was from heaven, then he's going to say, I have the same calling. But if they say no, they know they're in trouble because the people already knew he was a prophet, just as they believed that Yeshua was a prophet. And what they were trying to do was challenge him to get him to back down, and he did not back down. They had to back down or back up, shall we say. Um, and then Yeshua begins to give additional information about this whole quandary, this whole question, and begins to address uh, so his disciples can understand, the chief priests and scribes can understand what is at stake here. Verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and he said, son, go to work in the, in the uh, vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second son and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. But he afterward regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the latter. Yeshua said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. What he was directly saying to them was, you have verbally said that you will follow the Lord, you will obey the Lord, and yet you don't. But all these other sinners that are out here, whereas they started out their lives not obeying the Lord, if they repent and turn back to the Lord, they will be in the kingdom of heaven. And whereas those who did not do the will of God will not be in the kingdom of heaven. Let me remind you uh, back in Matthew chapter 7 that Yeshua specifically said that not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord will be entering the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to say that uh, they will argue and say, well, we've cast out demons in your name and we've done many miracles in your name, many good works in your name. And he will say, depart from ye, ye who are lawless, who do not obey me. And uh, that's, that same passage and teaching it did in Matthew 7 fits right here, but he's having the conversation directly with the chief priests and with the um, scribes. Now, so you understand the chief priests, within the temple system, there was some 18 what we call high priests that worked with the chief priests. Uh, there was the chief priest, there was the second priest, there was the Catholican, there was the Gazberim. Uh, these 18 men were responsible for the operation and management of the temple system. And so it was the guys that are in charge of the temple system that were coming and asking these questions. He continues on in his explanation and he says this, verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe in him. And you, seeing this, did not even remorse um, afterward so as to believe him. You saw that John caused the lives of sinners to change, 
to move away from sinful things and move toward walking in path of righteousness. You as the religious leaders, you saw those results, and yet you still wouldn't believe. You still wouldn't come to terms with it. Um, it's a very powerful argument in your ministry if <clears throat> in the course of evaluating the ministry, one guy says, <clears throat> well, our church raised so much amount of money. The other one says, yeah, but we didn't raise a lot of money, but we have a whole lot of people who, who've turned to the Lord, who've gotten saved. Which one is doing the will of God? It's the one that's increasing the kingdom. And the increase of the kingdom is not money. The increase of the kingdom is the number of believers that come into uh, the house of God. He goes on further to say this, verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But the vine growers saw the son, and they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched inn and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper uh, seasons. Let's uh, make sure we understand the parable he did because he just expanded it to the history of Israel. You could say that the land of Israel is, is a, 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 vineyard, a vineyard and it's owned by God. The land of Israel belongs to God, not to the people. But the people have been put on the land to tend the land and to live there. And so they are, and they're living there. So the Lord then says, I would like to have my portion that comes from the land since I'm the owner of the land. And then the Lord says to us, he says, I want a tenth of your increase. So what they do is they resist that. They refuse to do it. And when God sent prophets to them, uh, to, to work with them, they killed the prophets. They stoned them. They, they got rid of them. They cast them off. Then he sent more prophets. And again, they've done the same thing. And we have a whole book full of prophets who come to Israel. And for the most part, let me go ahead and just tell you, you don't want to apply for a job of being a prophet to Israel because it's generally a short-term job and you're probably going to get killed uh, because the people rebel against the Lord. Well, then the story shifts to that he sent his son. Now, that would be a reference to the Messiah, the Son of God. He's sending the son to it. Will they respect him? And he's showing, no, they won't respect him. They will cast him out and kill him because they know the Messiah is the heir. He is the king of Israel. He's the one who's in charge of Israel. And again, they want to reject all authority over them from the Lord. So he draws that parallel for them. Then he says, um, uh, verse 42, And then Yeshua said to them, 
Did you never read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That verse comes from Psalms 118, and it talks about the rejection of the Messiah. And Israel did reject the, the Messiah, the chief cornerstone, and they rejected him. Now, what's so interesting about this verse, Psalms 118, this is part of the Hillel Psalms in a Passover Seder. Every Passover, observant Passover people uh, recount this passage of Scripture. Isn't it fascinating that the rejection of the Messiah should be part of the Siddur of the Passover. Yeshua had the Passover with his disciples. He immediately went out and he's being rejected as the chief cornerstone. So he's saying to them, aren't you aware of what it says there? Aren't you aware of what it means? It means that you're going to reject the chief cornerstone. You're going to reject the Messiah even when he comes. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The Messiah is going to be the ultimate judge of all of us. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Yeshua confronted the chief priests and, and them in the temple area directly about it. The stage is now set for the rejection of the chief cornerstone. The stage is now set for the arrest of, um, of Yeshua and for his ultimate um, trial and execution. So we had the, the fig tree last portion now we have the chief priest making the decision. They want to reject his authority, and, and they are going to reject him as the chief cornerstone. Chapter 22, And Yeshua answered and spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fattened livestock, all are butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one, on, one to his farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies to destroy those murderers and set the city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. There, go therefore in the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw that a man, there was a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him uh, hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, again, 
Yeshua is using a parable about a king who wants to have a wedding feast. And he's talking about those that are close to him that refuse to come. They refuse to do it. Then when he invites them further to come, then they harm his servants. And so he says, the king says, I will judge those people who have done that. At this point, we're still talking about Israel. We're still talking about religious leaders and other people in Israel who've rejected the Lord. They're invited to come to the wedding feast. They're invited to be part of the kingdom, to be part of the bride of the Messiah. And for various reasons, they're rejecting it. And so God brings judgment upon them. And God did bring judgment upon Israel. Israel was scattered to the nations as a result, just as Moses had prophesied and many of the prophets have prophesied that if we reject the Lord, we'll be scattered to the nations. And they were. But then in the course of scattering them to nations, there was another group. Uh, and in this particular case, we're talking about the rest of the world, the Gentile world. So they've been invited now to the wedding feast, and there's a whole bunch of them coming uh, to that. Praise the Lord. We're talking about um, when the gospel went to the Gentiles. However, there's a problem. Some of the people coming to the wedding feast are not wearing wedding clothes. Now, what in the world would be that? Well, the scripture tells us in the end that the saints will don robes of righteousness. There are some Gentiles who come in and think they can be a part of the faith and that they have no righteousness whatsoever. And the righteousness comes from God, not from men. And if they're not attired correctly, they will not make it into the kingdom. Again, I go back to what Yeshua said. Not everybody calls me Lord, Lord will be entering the kingdom. And he says specifically, the reason why they're not is because they're lawless. They don't obey the Lord, okay? And they don't have faith in the Lord to obey him. They don't even know the Lord. And as a result, they're going to be, even though they're hanging out, you know, with these Gentile guests that are coming in the wedding feast, namely, uh, we could say the church in general, there's a whole bunch of them that are not going to make it into the kingdom. They're going to be rejected and they will not make it to the wedding feast for it. So that's a case where Yeshua took the basic premise that he was trying to give to the chief priests and expanded it to the whole period of the giving of the gospel, even to the nations. And he concludes it for many are called, but few are chosen. And every, uh, you know, I've heard people ask me, say, well, what exactly is the chosen people? Well, that's the elect of God. And God chooses every person that's going to be in it. If we use the principle of adoption, by the way, that's a doctrine in, in the scriptures, the father makes the choice of who is adopted. The, the little kid who wants to be, he wants to be adopted, but he can't make that decision. It can be his desire, but the father has to make the decision to adopt, to choose. The same thing is true of us in the faith. I keep saying this again and again. You did not choose God. God chose you to be part of his kingdom. And that should invoke within us uh, a compelling uh, position to want to be thankful, uh, 
uh, for God's grace, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's by His uh, uh, favor that has been given to us. And mercy, in other words, there should be no sense of entitlement on our part with it. We're here by the grace of God. Amen. All right. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the, the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Yeshua perceived their malice, and he said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? By the way, if you go back, you remember there was Herodians that also came. Herodians were Jews who followed King Herod, who was the king of the Jews, who'd been appointed by Caesar, Rome. So they're in support of Rome, and so they come, and so they're asking him, should we pay the proper tax to the Roman government for it? And so he, he traps them in. He, they're trying to trap him with it and trying to get him to say, no, we shouldn't. We should just do it with God. Um, so verse 19, it says, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, a Roman coin. And he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled and leaving him, they went away. This is the best answer that could be given. Why do we as believers <clears throat> pay taxes to the government? It's run by men. It's because we live in the country and we need civil order and the government is responsible for giving civil order to us to build roads and make it accessible for us to live and so forth. Um, the Lord only asks of you a tithe and, and free will offerings. The government is going to come in. They're going to ask for a lot more. This is just the reality of the world that we live in. None of us are exempt where we can go off on our own little island and be, a, be an island unto ourselves uh, we are all subject to the authorities that are in the world. And by the way, the scripture tells us to be to be responsive to the authorities that are in the world. And in this case, even Yeshua said, if it's Caesar's money, then give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give what belongs to the Lord to the Lord. And that's the right and proper answer. And they knew it was the right and proper answer as they left him. <clears throat> Verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brother or next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And also the seventh, the second, and the third, down to the seventh, and last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife on the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Yeshua answered and said to them, You are mistaken, um, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. Let me stop for just a moment. What his, has Moses said here is accurate and true. 
Moses gave instruction that within a household that if a man was married to his wife and he had, he had not yet raised up a son, that if he died, then his brother was to help to raise up a son to maintain his name. Because the woman needs to have sons so that they can raise up. That's her final retirement program. When her husband's gone away, her son cares for her. That was the way things were done. Well, basically what they've done is they've protracted a basic commandment that Moses gave for the security of the woman. And then they went into the resurrection period. And if you remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they're saying, well, who, who is she married to? You know, because she had all seven brothers. Um, and there's a lot of mistakes here. Number one, the Sadducees don't believe in this question that they're asking. They're just trying to trap uh, Yeshua for it. Their bias is just reeking uh, with it. This is not a sincere question. And by the way, when you get into arguments and people are asking you insincere questions, the best way to deal with it is just ignore them uh, because it's not real that you're dealing with. It's a non-problem, as we say. But Yeshua gives uh, this answer. Verse 29, he says, You err not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. So let's analyze that for just a moment. Since we're talking about the subject of the resurrection, that's what the subject is really about. There's no dispute about what Moses' instruction was, but there is a dispute about the resurrection. So he says, you do err because you don't understand the scriptures. Do the scriptures teach, does the Torah teach there's a resurrection? The answer is absolutely yes, it does. Let me give you just a couple of quick instances. When Abraham went with Isaac up to Mount Moriah and he was going to sacrifice um, Isaac, he knew Isaac was the promised son, that there would be many descendants that would come from him. But he'd been commanded by God to give Isaac back, to slay him, to sacrifice him. He was going to kill him. He was going to put him on the altar and burn his body. There was no way that he was going to walk back. So when he left, uh, he and Isaac left the servants and they told him to wait there, he specifically said these words, the lad and I will return. So he knew he was going to follow what the Lord says, but somehow God was going to solve this problem and Isaac was going to be coming back. So it's very clear Abraham believed in a resurrection. He believed he was going to slay his son, and he believed his son was going to return. So it's very clear that that was so. If you take the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, <laughs> wow, Lazarus was dead, and yet he was raised from the dead. And they had that evidence in their day. Now, Yeshua goes on to say something further about the argument that they've made. Verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Again, Yeshua gave an even another argument for specifically, if he says he's the God of Abraham, then Abraham must exist somewhere. If he's the God of Isaac, Isaac has to exist somewhere. Jacob, the same. 
the, the paradise, the place that we ultimately go to when we pass before we're in the kingdom, is called the bosom of Abraham. We go to the place where Abraham is, where Abraham is already waiting. Now, I'm not going to get into any of the details about what further that is. There are other places that address that, but that's not necessarily the point we're trying to prove. He was trying to show that if God himself says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not the God of dead people. He's the God of people that really exist. And they still exist even though they've passed. <clears throat> but then let's go back for just a moment when he talks about what it will be like in the resurrection. Verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are they giving in marriage, for they are like angels in heaven. Angels don't associate with, uh, with regard to social issues. Angels are there as servants of God to do the work of God. And when you go into the kingdom, you'll be a servant of God and be a part of that. Now, is that saying, hey, my spouse that I love, you know, I don't get to be with her? No, I get to be with her. I get to be with her. Uh, but it's not necessarily like an earthly marriage, you know, when we try to put the best spin on. Believe me, being in the presence of God, being in the kingdom of God is far better than what we have as existence here on the earth. This is just a foreshadowing of what's supposed to be in the kingdom if we obey the commandments. <clears throat> so don't be concerned about that. For those of you who've had your spouse, it will all get sorted out. Now, for those of you who may have had multiple marriages in the faith, and you're asking, well, what, how, how are we going to deal with that when we get to the kingdom? God only knows. I can't answer that question for you, but I'm certain that the Lord will sort that all out for you, and we can trust him to do that. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So you see the challenging that's being done here? Let me tell you what's really taking place. Everybody is testing the Messiah because the Lamb of God, when he enters the house before the Passover, the Lamb has to be examined for any spot or blemish. You have to see if there's anything inappropriate about the Lamb. So here's Yeshua, the Lamb of God. They don't quite recognize that yet. But they're examining him to see if they can find any spot or blemish. You know, they're actually fulfilling the prophecies of the Passover. So they continued to examine him. Now, we've had the chief priests. We've had the Sadducees. Now we're going to have the Pharisees. Uh, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Yeshua asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thy enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. 
Essentially, the conclusion of the examination of the Messiah is now complete. The Lamb of God has been fully tested, examined, and they cannot find spot or blemish in it. This uh, question that he posed to him, asking him, what's the greatest commandment? And they said, the, and he answers, this is what it is. And then he went steps over to say that the second greatest, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For those of you who know and understand the Ten Commandments and the, the idea of the two tablets, the one tablet with the first five commandments have to do with your relationship with God. He tells you to believe in him. He tells you not to make idols. Uh, he tells you to keep the Sabbath, recognizing him as the creator. He tells you to honor your father and mother because he's your heavenly father. If you break those, you're breaking commandments against God. And you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And you show that you love the Lord your God by keeping those five commandments. Now, the other one are commandments that have to do with men. You should not murder, you should not steal, you should not lie, not covet, so forth. Uh, those are commandments in your relationship with men. And if, and if you'll keep those five commandments, you won't have any difficulty loving your neighbor. You violate those commandments, you're not loving your neighbor. So in a sense, what he did was he explained the law, if you will, in a very simple way by saying it's like the two tablets. One tablet has to do with your relationship with God, the greatest commandment. And the second one is like unto the first, it's love your neighbor as yourself. He's summarizing, he's giving a review of the law, which is something that a scholar can do. He can take a very complex subject and he can simplify it down into some simple, understandable things. That means he knows his subject and he knows how to teach his subject. The Pharisees, which prided themselves on being Torah teachers, saw that he had a superior expertise, you know, at that level. And so they had to accept the fact that we're not going to find, we're not going to trip this guy up. Uh, by, uh, by questioning what has Moses taught or what does the law teach whatsoever. <clears throat> but what he does is he then goes and takes to, to other scriptures, the law and the prophets. And he says, David, in the spirit of the Lord, wrote this psalm and he talked about how his son would be the Messiah and that he would bow down to his son. He would call his son Lord. And they were asking him, how is that possible? How is it possible that a father calls his son Lord? And it has to do with the Messiah, the work of the Messiah, and how the Messiah will operate. And they are in a quandary because they never really come to terms with the identity of who the Messiah really is and who he should be and how, what prophecies is he going to come and fulfill. There was always speculation and error on their part with regard to it. So let's now go to chapter 23, and we'll get into this a little bit. Then Yeshua spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. They are themselves unwilling to move with such a finger. 
But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace where men call them rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for the one is your leader, that is the Messiah. For the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Uh, this is a very tears chapter, chapter 23, because after having been examined and everybody found no fault with him, he now turns the tables and he begins to teach his disciples. He said, when it comes to those that are guilty, when it comes to those that are um, not doing the will of God, you have but to look around at those that are in authority over you. Um, if Yeshua was standing here today in the country where we live at the moment, he would be making a very similar speech about presidents, senators, congressmen, governors, mayors, and anybody that's in a th religious authority. They're all hypocrites. That is a fact. Therefore, they have no righteousness to commend them. And we have to deal with them. Uh, and by the way, let me just go ahead and shorten this up for you. The way to deal with them is to put your trust in the Lord. Um, he's your heavenly father. And be aware of the fact that men are going to try to use titles and positional authority over you. They're trying to exercise authority over you. That's what it's called uh, authority by professional title. When you say governor and everybody has to call him governor, well, you're recognizing his authority. Even after the governor is retired and is not the governor, they still give him the title. It's a way of recognizing that. Um, and Yeshua is, is giving this teaching here, and he's basically saying, don't call him that, or don't, don't, don't have yourself be called by that. And the reason it goes back to when they asked him the question, by what authority do you do these things? Um, it's, here's the Messiah for crying out loud. I mean, he has authority from God. But ask yourself, did he go around telling everybody, call me Messiah Yeshua? No. What we have, in fact, in Scripture is the testimony of the disciples calling him Yeshua, the Messiah. He doesn't put the title in front of who he is because he, the person, is the most important part there. All right, when we come back together again, we're going to come back at chapter 23, beginning at verse 14. Shalom, everyone. I'll see you in the next program.